welcome to another episode of Try iPod, the MD PhD admissions podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Fulford, and today we're here with Dr. Aaron Sipis of the NIH. I'm, a, uh, I'm an investigator at the National Institutes of Health, which is the equivalent of an associate professor in a standard academic environment. And what we do in my group is study a newly discovered functional organ called brown adipose tissue, also known as BAT or brown fat. And what we're trying to determine is if its ability to burn off fat and glucose calories can be harnessed to treat obesity and metabolic disease. And we're also trying to find out if brown fat, like white fat, is also an endocrine organ and how it communicates with the rest of the body. Is that pure research or do you end up seeing uh, people in a clinical setting? Oh, it's great fun. We, we do both. I'd say about 75% of our group does direct interaction with human volunteers for clinical trials. And about 25% is taking the observations that we see in our human-based studies and then going back to the laboratory and trying to answer them. So it really is a bed-to-bench and then bench-back-to-bed kind of operation. Great. So that makes you a particularly good example of uh, the MD-PhD in the field. Um, so just to, back, uh, to go back to your education in the TriI program, um, when you were uh, both applying and as a first year, um, what experiences did you bring with you to the process? Uh, did you feel as if you were uh, prepared or was there any amount of culture shock um, when you first <laughs> arrived here? I'd say that medical school was pretty much a theme and variations building on what I had done in college and before that. So the training at, at, at in medical school was something I could handle and, and it, it went well. Research-wise, the laboratory I joined, I was in Tom Sackmar's lab in my first rotation, and that was also building on the bench research that I had done as an undergraduate at Princeton, where we were looking at uh, uh, the function and structure of transmembrane proteins, since that was also a nice extension. What was a challenge for me when I came was the whole other areas of molecular biology and biochemistry and genetics, which I didn't have any experience with either in college where I was a chemistry major or in any of the rotations I'd done during the uh, summers. And what really made a difference for me was the Frontiers in Biomedical Sciences weekly uh, seminar series that was for the MD-PhD students. It really gave me an introduction and then some um, background in all the, lot, the other areas of biomedical research that I had not seen, and it was very helpful going forward. Great. That's interesting that you mentioned that course specifically because that has become the course that uh, MD students use to consider whether or not they'd switch to being an MD-PhD. So it is that kind of like acculturating process that we use in the course of um, the, cor- the initial coursework. Oh, really? So it's it, every, so every, all the MD-PhD students need to do it, and now also MDs who might want to uh, transition over. That's very good. It's, it's a great opportunity, and even if you don't make the transition, it's all good knowledge to have. You'll use it later. In the course of your MD-PhD education, um, I'm very interested in how people weather the transitions between uh, clinical work and research, especially if that is something they stick with in their careers. How did you encounter that in the course of uh, your student life? Generally speaking, the transitions are at first rather difficult because the MD mindset and the PhD mindset are very different. They're really 
work well when you synthesize them. But MD is all about um, a mile wide and an inch deep as you start. And your PhD, it's a mile deep and an inch wide in terms of what you know. So I was, by the end of my PhD, for example, I was pretty much an authority on uh, the signal transduction of G-protein coupled receptors. It was a great feeling, we had papers published. And then I went right to neurology and I had to remember how to do a history and physical and, I, and all the other things uh, that I hadn't really thought about and done much for four and a half years. Uh, that was a difficult transition and my colleagues who are now prof you know, professors of medicine, heads of departments, had said the same thing at the time. And what I'd seen is that I've done that back and forth between base, more clinical or more uh, bench research several times. And the reassuring part of it is that it gets easier every time you go back and forth. You know a lot more each time. So uh, it wasn't easy, but it got easier as I moved through my career. Great. So you talk about that mostly in terms of a like a knowledge paradigm. Um, how would you say that it's uh, like dealing with patients as opposed to, you know, asking questions in lab? Like, is that kind of like a psychological or emotional uh, switch that you need to make in the course of your education? Yes. You, you have, there's a lot more time when you're doing research. If you're not sure about something, then you really have to spend the time either talking to people, going through the literature or other kinds of investigations to make sure you really know what you're talking about because you're not going to spend six months to a year to three years on a particular experimental protocol unless you're pretty sure you know what you're doing. Whereas with patients, it just comes rapid fire. And I think one of the things that really impressed me and I tell students today is that you could hypothesize what might happen in a human, whether it's an experimental situation or if the patient, uh, it's uh, him or herself, um, you just don't know what's going to happen until you actually do it. And therefore, it can be a very humbling experience, but you, you get a better sense of, of how human physiology is both really complicated but really fascinating at the same time. So in the course of the transitions that you make between uh, clinical and research work and back again, um, did you, how did you feel supported, especially between uh, the institutions that you worked with? Well, what was nice is that there was a clear understanding from the position of the MD-PhD, the Tri-Institutional MD-PhD program that, that we were um, special with the lowercase s people. No, we, we, were, we were people who needed a certain amount of um, support as we undertook a very difficult task, which was to start medical school, do some research in the meantime, then go and do our doctoral work and then come back. And so there was an understanding of the pressures of time, uh, of uh, helping assemble the uh, committees that were necessary to finish the, uh, defend the PhD. And then, I mean, this was critical, we were able to um, get the rotations we needed when we needed them uh, for third year clerkships so that we could finish the whole program within a reasonable period of time. And you know, the, the other thing is that whenever you have a, a cohort of like-minded people, there is knowledge across the generations. And you, you could talk to somebody who was, you were a first year, you could talk to third years or sixth years. And as you went further, you could say, like, what did you do and how did it help? And that was extremely valuable. Great. That's a really, I think that's a really valuable thing for um, especially uh, the younger students to understand. And I think they do quickly understand it, that uh, their fellow students are as much of a resource as uh, any of the, the mentors or, um, or authority figures they actually encounter in the course of their work. 
Oh yeah, that was that was a very very important and um, special aspect of it. I remember the first research retreat. We learned so much. I was a fir- I was just finished my first summer, and we learned so much about how to uh, survive and then succeed in uh, the first medical courses, and then uh, what the transitions were like. So it, it, yes, there was a structure that the transitutional program put together, and that was ex- you know very valuable, um, but. The fact that we were part of a very large group, you're looking at 10 to 20 students over the course of seven to eight or even more years, that's a body of 60 to 70 people you can talk to. And whenever you have that kind of resource and you're all meant, you're really you know, helping each other out, that's a big difference. You don't see that in most other programs to the same extent because of the volume and the um, the history of the program. From our end, there seems to be a sweet spot in terms of the class size. If it's too small, it's a little bit too claustrophobic. And if it's too big, then the group doesn't really cohere in the same way. So we definitely have that in mind when we plan out the incoming classes in terms of like people who end up supporting each other and how much time they spend together. As an alum, um, especially as an alum who uh, works for an institution like the NIH, um, how would you characterize your current relationship to the TriI program? Oh, I'm, I'm very grateful uh, for what I got out of the TriI training. No question, I focused my career so that it would take advantage of both the medical training and the PhD work that I did. Um, and when we were able to make our discovery that brown fat was a functional organ, it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and soon afterward, I had the opportunity to come back to the tri-institutional program and meet with the students and talk about my experience and what worked and what didn't, and that was great. I was able to, you know, come back to a place that was very supportive. I have very um, strong and positive feelings towards the program and what they continue to do today. I think one of the things that should be appreciated is that uh, having the tri-I training puts us at a distinct advantage for doing clinical translational research. Um, We can do bench science, but because we have the medical training, we can relate it to humans and patients um, in a much more meaningful way. They really do inform each other. And so people should really consider um, that special spot where it's not entirely clinical, large-scale clinical trials or not only in the bench, but doing both aspects. We're very well um, equipped to go into that niche, and it's not filled by many people, so there's a chance to pursue a career in that area. And another thing that wasn't clear, um, and I think is very important to recognize, is that there are many different ways that our training can be used to further the health of both um, our patients who are immediately before us, but also um, the general health of, of, uh, of humans, and that is that one can be in academia, and that's part of the, the standard track because the tri-institutional program is part of an academic environment, but there's also government and government-related opportunities, the NIH being one of them, where I am currently, and also uh, there's a lot of contributions people can make from being within industry, um, and that uh, there are many programs that are academic-like, and one gets to pursue lots of interesting questions, and there's a lot of funding to make direct differences in treating people with all sorts of either rare or common diseases. And so I think it's useful. I didn't have any idea when I was going through the program about this, but that 
there are many different options once one finishes one's training. And um, it's certainly as, as one graduates, but even as one finishes fel- uh, residency and fellowship, all those things. And it's important to talk to people who are, again, further down the path to know what kinds of careers are available and what kinds of questions can be asked. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Sipis. It's a pleasure. 